Well, good morning. How are y'all? Welcome to Trinity. My name is Chris Colquitt. I'm a senior pastor here, and it's a real joy to be with you this morning and to open God's Word with you. If you're a visitor this morning, you're most welcome, and I would love to meet you. I think I'm going to be back there after the service. That's my tentative plan. So come find me back there. Introduce yourself. Um, We are so glad that you are here. We are spending the fall, and we will also spend much of the spring, in the book of Genesis. And we've been going slow through Genesis 1 through 3, and we read this morning the second half of Genesis chapter 3. You'll see there's also a verse or a passage from Romans printed for you in your bulletin. We'll read that in a little bit, so stay tuned on the Romans passage. But this is Genesis 3, 14 to 24. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us, like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, our great God and Father, what a joy it is to be gathered as your people by your word. Lord, we couldn't know you without you revealing yourself to us, and we thank you that you have. We pray now that the same Holy Spirit who breathed these words out would be among us, that you would speak through me and in all of us, and that even here at this darkest of moments in the scriptures, we would see hope, and we would see Christ, our one and only Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you want to know somebody, you need to get to know their story. This is true of the person sitting next to you, and it's true of superheroes. There's a great genre of origin stories for superheroes if you're a comic book fan. Who Superman is, for instance, you got to know the backstory. And to know who we are as people, we need to know the backstory. And that's really what we're getting in Genesis 1 through 3, our origin story. And our origin story helps us understand who we are as people and where we are in the story. 
In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw the good stuff. We saw God's beautiful design for his creatures. We saw the blueprints and have something of an instruction manual. We went back to the factory and there we are. This is what God made us for. And there we get a picture of what the beautiful life is. We can understand and explain our dreams and our desires. We have this religious impulse for worship, and, and we have that because we were made in the image of God to worship God. We have this desire to work, and we have that because we were made to work. We were made with a task. We were made with a mission. We have a need for a relationship. We feel lonely. We are drawn to one another. We have marriage. We make babies. We know why. God made us that way. And we have this sense, this longing for progress, to do something, to reach some final destination that time is not stagnant and stale, but there's something happening, and we see that in Genesis 1 and 2. So we have an explanation of our dreams, our hopes, our desires. But you and I know from experience, even this very day, that life in this world is not an experience of dreams that lead happily to desires fulfilled just like that. That's not the course of our lives. We are dreamers, but those dreams are often frustrated and disappointed. We find ourselves experiencing the futility of this world. And in Genesis 3 and 4, which we're studying now, we get a picture of what went wrong. What happened? If Genesis 1 and 2 explains our dreaming, Genesis 3 and 4 explains our groaning. We long for something else, we're disappointed. We live in a world where we feel this tension between beauty and ugliness, sensing both that there's something very good about this place in our dreams and something very wrong with this place. How we handle that tension is a fundamental question for understanding our lives as humans. And it's an answer the Bible offers us, a question and answer, the answer the Bible offers us an answer to. I don't know, the language got screwed up there. Okay, it happens. In the Colquitt family, and my dad may be listening to this sermon, so I'm exposing him, uh, there's a pattern that's been passed down. I don't think it's generational sin, but it's definitely generational practice. Uh, my dad, from time to time, and this happens sitting in the front seat, it happens, you can hear him from the shower sometimes, he'll just let out a massive sigh. Ah! Or it'll be a prayer, like, oh, Lord, help us. And, and we'll just be sitting in the car, and he'll, he'll be lost in his thoughts, and he'll just say, oh, help us, Lord. And sadly, I've picked that up. And so from time to time... I will just be thinking about the world and its challenges, and I will let out a sigh, a groan. And whether you do that verbally, um, and it's probably polite not to, that's a sense that we have inside ourselves, right? As we, as we experience our dreams and our disappointments, there's a groaning, there's a sighing that happens. And the Bible in Genesis 3 is going to help us understand that, help us to know what we do with our groaning. And Genesis 3 here helps us in two ways that we're going to look at this morning. One, it gives us perspective to understand what happened, why do we feel this way? But then second, and even more importantly, it gives us hope that there is a resolution beyond the dreams and the disappointments, that there is something out there that is to come. Remarkably, at this very dark moment in history, when God judges Adam and Eve, we see his first promise of the gospel as we're going to see, a promise that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that's our task this morning, to make sense of our groaning, and our outline will follow 
along the way. Here's our three points if you're taking notes. First, the cause of our groaning. Second, the hope of groaning. And third, the way of groaning. So the cause, the hope, and the way. Why do we groan? Why is the world the way it is? Why does it seem so frustrating and futile sometimes to live life as a human? Genesis 3 gives us an answer, and this curse from God gives us this answer. God announces his judgment on all three characters who are there in the garden, first on the serpent, and then on Eve, and then on Adam. And listen to what he says to the serpent. He tells him he's going to be humbled. He was in the tree, and he's about to crawl on his belly in the dust. He is not going to be the exalted one, even though man has put him in that place. He's going down. He's not going away yet, and we'll talk about why in a minute, but he's going down. And crucially, in verse 15, God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and the woman's seed. This declaration of allegiance that Adam and Eve had made to the serpent, God is going to break. He's going to introduce war into the world. He's going to put them against one another. And then to the humans, God says life's about to change. Those designs and desires that we see set up in Genesis 1 and 2 are subjected to pain and futility. The command to be fruitful and multiply is now matched with the reality that there's going to be pain in childbearing. This idea that it's not good for man to be alone, that we should leave and cleave to one another, that marriage is this beautiful design. Now there's going to be conflict and struggle in the marital relationship. If you want to know why marriage is hard, this is a good reason. Where Adam and Eve were commanded to work the garden, to work the ground, now there's going to be pains. There's going to be pain and thorn and thistles and sweat. It's not going to be easy to do the thing that they are called to do. And worst of all, where there was in the garden this promise of life forever, this tree of life that they could have eaten from had they performed righteously, now that way is blocked. And God says, you came from dust and you're going back to dust. This longing for progress and future that we have born in us, that we've got a task to do, we want to do it together with one another, and we're going to receive blessing at the end. That task is now hard, we don't like each other, and we die. We move from a world of destiny in Genesis 1 and 2 to a world of futility in Genesis 3, pain, frustration. That's God's judgment on what happened and what Kelly talked about last week when Adam and Eve rejected their Lord and declared allegiance to the snake, to Satan. Now, there's two equally true ways to see this curse. And it's important to see them both here. And this is not an aside, but it's important for us to, to recognize. On the one hand, this is the judgment of God on Adam and Eve. God is bringing judgment here. This is penalty. This is consequence. It's an act of God. He speaks this. And on the other hand... It also appears to be the natural fruit of man's rebellion against God, his allegiance to the serpent, the fruit of Satan himself. Sometimes we talk about our kids suffering natural consequences, right, when they mess up. This is a natural consequence. God says this is what it looks like to be in allegiance to the, creator, the creature rather than the creator. 
The punishment seems to fit the crime. And the Bible talks about judgment in the sense of giving us over to our desires. And there's a sense in which that's what God is doing here. So in the aftermath of this rejection of God, man and woman themselves are sent out. And the destiny that they have is now futility. That is the reason that we groan. Pause here for an application. And this is not to be passed over, which is to say, you, if you feel like groaning, are not crazy. If you feel like this world is not the way it's supposed to be, you're right. There's not something wrong with you in particular. There's something wrong with this world in general and you in particular. The, the voice of the teenager, and I'm sure none of us in this room, whether teenager or former teenager, ever said this, right? I don't belong here. I can't believe I was born in this family. What's wrong with you people? That sort of thing. Anyone ever heard that before? We, we grow up and stop saying that out loud, but we feel that, right? We feel that in this place, and we're right to feel that. Something's gone terribly wrong. Now, the, there's, a, there's a comfort here that's worth pausing on. If, if you get a terrible diagnosis, you actually are slightly better off than the, the moment before when you didn't know what was going on. Some of y'all have experienced that, where you don't know what the heck is going on. And, and a diagnosis, even a bad one, is better than the unknown. And here we have a diagnosis. There is something very wrong with our world. There is reason to groan. Our groans are warranted, and they're downstream of this cataclysmic origin story. And there's a problem with the world, and there's a problem with you and with me. We've declared allegiance to Satan, and this is what we get. Now, here's a question that we don't usually ask when we read Genesis 3, but I want us to think about right now. Why does God not just end it all here? Why doesn't he kill the snake, send Adam and Eve to their grave, and be done with it? Why is the snake still crawling around? And why are Adam and Eve, they're kicked out, but they're not dead yet. And they're going to die, but they're going to also keep procreating. Their race will continue, though, through pain. Why? Why not be done? What's God up to? Well, that points us to a further meaning to the curse of Genesis chapter 3 and to our second point, which is the hope of groaning. Because there's not just a judgment here in Genesis 3. And that's what I want us to see as we look at this text. And to do that, I want to read from Romans 18. Romans 8. Romans 18 doesn't exist. Romans 8, 18 to 25, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Paul here is one of the most magnificent chapters in Scripture. But I want us to receive this as I think it is, which is Paul's commentary in part on Genesis 3, and it's full of imagery from Eden. If I tried to explain it all, it'd be like explaining a joke, which isn't a very funny thing to do. Um, So just hear it, uh, especially hear about the birth pangs, uh, and recognize that what Paul is doing here is rereading for us, reinterpreting for us our groaning. This is Romans 8, 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul sees the futility of this world. He sees the groaning. But see what he says. He says, God did not, the creation was subjected to futility in hope. Somehow, and this is the title of the sermon, what's going on in Genesis chapter 3 is subjection in hope. Futility unto hope. Why not end it all in Genesis chapter 3? Well, because God was doing more than just bringing judgment. The judgment he brought was not full and final. What he was doing was delaying. And why? Well, because he had work to do. Genesis 3 sets up an interim period in the history of the world where God is going to go and execute a redemptive plan to rescue a people for himself. Man had declared allegiance to Satan, but God breaks that allegiance. This is what we see in Genesis 3.15, one of the most important verses in your Bible. I will put enmity, enmity, I never pronounced that word right, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God starts a war with Satan in the garden. And he says that someday a son of Eve is going to crush the head of Satan and do what Adam should have done in the first place. And the whole of human existence from, the, from this point on in the Bible and in which we live is the story of that war being executed by God and God preparing the way for the son of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. And it's not for nothing that in Revelation, what's the last thing that happens Christ destroys the serpent. From Genesis to Malachi, he lays the groundwork for the coming Messiah, and then Christ comes, and he accomplishes on the cross the defeat of death itself. But even then, it's not final. It's not finished. Christ goes to heaven to prepare a place, and he sends his spirit. And why not just end it all then? Because there's work to do. Because the Spirit is going to go and gather a people for God who will be united to Jesus Christ, a remnant who will be God's people. And then only on the last day, which is still to come, the dead will be raised. And those who are in Christ will be raised to glory and those who are in Satan will be sent to judgment with the serpent himself. What that means is that you and I exist in the time of God's patience and waiting. God, in Genesis 3, sets up a period in which he can execute redemption unto our glorification. And this is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8. He's reinterpreting our groaning and the groaning of creation as productive groaning of childbirth. Groaning that has an end, not just futility unto futility, but futility, but groaning unto life. Creation longs for the day when the dead will be raised. 
Creation longs for that day when judgment will be done and the glorified people will take their place. See, the ground, this is getting a little poetic here, but bear with me. The ground was meant to be ruled and cared for by us on top of it. But what happens is that we die and live underneath it. This is imagery that Isaiah uses. It's kind of cool, right? So the ground supposed to be cared for by us in glory, and instead it hides our blood and our corpses within it. And that's part of what, that's part of what Paul's saying here. It's groaning. One commentator, and I love it, and I'm pretty sure it's right, but I'm not so sure it's right to tell you I'm 100% sure it's right. But it's so good, I'm going to tell you I think it might be right. <laughs> he says, creation is pregnant with dead people waiting to be risen to life. That's a really cool idea, right? So creation even now is groaning, just like the blood, the ground's going to cry out in, in Genesis 4 against, against Cain, Abel's blood. The ground's going to be like, what the heck? It groans, longing for resurrection to happen. The hope in which creation was subjected was a hope unto redemption and resurrection and glorification. And the curse of Genesis 3 creates that groaning, but it's a groaning of hope. God delayed his final judgment. He subjected the earth to futility. He started a war so that he could enact a rescue mission. That's the meaning of this time here. We are in an interim place, in a doubly interim place, because Christ has come and his gospel is going out. The futility of our fall in the world points not only to us to despair, but to hope. Brothers and sisters, when you see the pain and futility of this world, whether it's in death at its most acute, or in the thorns and the frustration of this life, and even when you're given birth to babies, seeing that, not just the futility of the judgment of God, but the hope, the delay, the interim period that God has set up so that he could execute his rescue mission for us. Our groans, our productive groans, they remind us that God has not left us, that he has done a mighty work. And Paul says in verse 23 that not only creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, which is this mountaintop passage, is, is prompted by Romans 7. And this question that Paul asks at the end of Romans 7 and verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul feels it. Do you feel it as a Christian? If you, if you, if you want to be with Jesus and you feel your sin, you groan. Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And then the story of Romans 8 and the love that cannot be separated from us, the love of Christ, is that for which we long and that which is secure. We groan as those with hope. This is really good news. We groan as those with hope. Our groanings are not futile. They are unto hope. But... That means that our hope is resurrection hope. And it means that our life here and now in this world, the one you and I are all living, is going to be a time of groaning, which is an uncomfortable reality that we need to work on, okay? That's where I want us to think about for this last bit of our sermon. 
if we recognize our hope is in resurrection, in the beyond, and that our present life is groaning, it's going to radically rearrange how we see our world. So what is the way of groaning? So Genesis 3 points to the patience and the redemptive plan of God, but it also means that our time in this world is a time of groaning. And our expectations for life might need to be adjusted. The hope of Genesis 3.15 itself is that there's a war going on, that we live in wartime. And that should encourage us, because it means that God eventually is going to win that war. I love, um, as many of you do, the Lord of the Rings. And one of the great thematic elements in the Lord of the Rings, for those of you who are familiar with the book, ideally, the movie, that's fine too, um, is this contrast between Frodo and Sam, who are hobbits, who love the Shire. And the Shire is this perfect place, uh, a picture of Middle England, which is actually kind of a picture of Charlottesville. It's a place of, of really just delightful comfort. And they're sent on this quest into a time of darkness and evil, a mighty battle. And they wrestle again and again throughout the story with this, reality, this longing to be back in the Shire, and yet the reality that there's, there's darkness and there's war, and they have a task, and the Shire's not for them anymore, right? They're, and, and that tension that you feel in the Lord of the Rings is a tension that you and I wrestle with every day. We want to be in heaven. We want to be in the Shire but wartime Christian living calls us to tension, calls us to live in the in-between and to be prepared to groan, even if that groaning produces hope. There are realized foretastes of hope, most of all, as we gather together as Christ's people. You can feast and celebrate, and that is good. And yet, much of our life is characterized by living in future hope, experiencing the pain of the fall of death. And we live in this time on mission, realizing that the only reason this time period exists is so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can go out into the world. And we long for Christ to return, and until he does, the purpose of our time is that the people of God might be gathered. And we see in Jesus Christ himself that the way of life in this time is a way of suffering. Christ groaned under the pain of this world. We are called to a life of tension, a life of hope, but a life of tension. We need to recognize, and this is where I want us to reflect, and I want to send you out with this thought, that we wake up in the morning with a very good but dangerous desire to resolve that tension. Okay? You and I want heaven, and that's good. We groan, and that's good, but we want to get rid of it. And we have all sorts of strategies for living that help us get fool's gold, fake rest now. And part of the battle of the Christian life is fighting to stay in that tension rather than taking other paths. And I just want to name two big temptations. One thing we can do, and this sort of is wartime analogy, we can look for peace in our time, Neville Chamberlain approach. We could also look for a war that we can win. And I want to talk about those two things and then we'll be done. So, so option one is that we look for peace wherever we can find it. One way we do that is by using our prosperity to insulate ourselves from the effects of the fall. We take an epidural, so to speak, against the groans of this life. 
And that, that works for people in prosperity and especially people in a time and place like America in the 21st century. And it works for a while. But inevitably we're confronted with the pain of the curse and the fall. The second way we can do that is by seeking to resolve the enmity through negotiated pieces. Right? Our, our world's super emphasis on tolerance at the expense of all else is a picture of this. Right? Let's just get along. Now, don't get me wrong. Peace is a great thing to long for. We want peace everywhere. We grieve at war. And yet we have to recognize as Christians that there is a war going on, a spiritual war. And if, we, if, if we're not willing to see that, we're going to slink back and become blind to the darkness that is around us. So we can find peace, whether through prosperity or through negotiation. The other way, and the way that I think do uh, go-getters like us tend to do, is that we try to fight lesser wars that we think we can win. Here's what I mean by that. We look for simpler enemies. Satan and our sin, that's complicated. We can pick points in time and people and places and groups and say, that's the problem. And we do this all the time. We look back at different dates and we can, we can argue over years, right? Numbers, and we say, there's where the fall happened, right? Maybe it was 2016 and all that happened then. Right? Maybe it was 1969 and the sexual revolution. Maybe it was 1619 and slavery in America. Maybe it was the Reformation or the Enlightenment. And those are interesting cultural observations and there's truth to them. But the thing that happens when we look at those particular dates is that we imagine happily in our head that if we just fix that thing, then we'd be back to good. To pick one that's not political... Um, 2006, 2007, 2006, Facebook becomes available to anyone over the age of 13. 2007, the iPhone is invented. And there's all sorts of incredibly good data that shows that if you came of age after 2006, 2007, your mental health is, took a precipitous decline, right? iPhones and social media, it turns out, are terrible for us. And we can make really good and true observations about that date. And yet... If we imagine that going back to 2005 with flip phones and no social media is the solution to our problems, we're wrong. We're fooled. We're fools. Because the iPhone and social media, our political unrest, racism, slavery, all the things in the history of this world are but symptoms of something that happened back in Genesis chapter 3. Where we need to get is not to some golden age in the 20th century or in the 19th century or in the 14th century or whenever it is, where we need to get is to the kingdom of God reigning and ruling and power, which is only going to come in eternity when Christ returns. We also seek to find simpler enemies by looking outside ourselves, and I'm going to skip that for now, but recognize that it's a lot easier to say the problems out there than it is in here. Genesis 3 and the vision of the Bible and the answer to what's wrong with our world is one that only can be solved by Jesus Christ coming, living, dying, rising, victorious, and returning ultimately to judge and bring resurrection life to us. We need to be careful not to lose that as our hope. 
We want to be comfortable. We want to be rid of the groaning. And yet, brothers and sisters, let your groaning point you to Jesus. Let your groaning point you to resurrection hope. There is not a political solution to the groaning in your heart. This world is messed up in such a way that only through the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection and glorification that is to come, only through that will all be made right. Look to that in hope. Sit in the tension. Revel in the tension even. Fight for justice. Do all sorts of good things in this world. Let the kingdom of God break in. But at the end of the day, recognize that we still groan. And we long for the kingdom that is to come. And we rest in the work of Jesus that has been done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, we rejoice and thank you that your gospel is good, good, good news. That it is not simply an instruction to fix the world, but a declaration that you have done it and you will do it. Lord, help us not to use our prosperity or our activism or whatever to blind us to the basic groaning that we feel and the hope to which it points. Lord, as we experience the thorns and thistles and sweat and pain, would we see in those realities even your patience and forbearance and the promise of Genesis 3.15 fulfilled in Jesus and look forward to the day that he will return. And Lord, we do pray that you would return this very day that until you do, you would equip and strengthen us for the task of gathering those who will call on your name. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.